up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Right, welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. I'm here in Zoomland with Ryan Walker, Senior Vice President, Federal Affairs at Shoemaker Advisors. Ryan, welcome to the show. How you doing today, buddy? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I like interviewing people from outside of Houston. It always gives some very unique perspective, especially you know you're coming. I'm assuming are you in Washington D.C. right now? Yeah, I'm in the D.C. area. Yeah, D.C. area. Okay, I live in Virginia, so kind of in my home office space here. Nice, nice. Well, I have to say, I respect the man who dresses up and he's got a tie on. And I oftentimes wish I published the video because not because of how I look most of the time. It's for the (laughs) guests who come on. They usually look pretty dapper. And I'm sitting here in my home office with a baseball cap on and a sweater with my daughter's drawings in the background, which (laughs) if anyone's been on the podcast or in a meeting with me for work, they know, you know, the ins and outs of this home office here, which is highly decorated with my daughter's artwork. So I love it. I love it. (laughs) Funny story. So when, you know, before COVID, she'd come to the office and she would, you know, she'd come visit, you know, if she had some time before she it was in elementary school and she was, oh, daddy, this stuff has to go on the wall so all your work friends can see it. And so, of course, you know, good dad, I couldn't say no. So then by the time COVID was, you know, right before we, you know, gone into lockdown, my whole office was just like every wall front to back was filled with my daughter's artwork. And then <laughs> when we came during COVID to your, you know, the pandemic lockdowns, everything else, everyone's working. Well, she's like, well, no one can see my artwork anymore. So I need to now put it on the wall at home. And it's funny because if you were in my home office right now, the only place there's artwork is behind the screen. So like <laughs> nowhere else has artwork because she wants to make sure everyone who's you know, work friends gets to see her artwork. And so, That's yeah, right. it's funny. You'd think it's all over the place, but it's, no, it's only so people can see it. But <laughs> anyway, this is not a podcast about home offices, but I'm curious. So, so do you spend a lot of time working from home then, or just to kind of depends? So my firm, we don't, right now, we don't have a physical office in DC. I think we're working on getting one, but right now, so I spend kind of, you know, I do my administrative kind of my work that I do out of my home office, but majority of my time is I'll go into DC and just spend on Capitol Hill or in different meetings. So really, you know, a lot what I do is a people business. I joke with people, I get paid to talk. So I I like that. Yeah. So it's basically, we're just, you know, I'm in, I'm on Capitol Hill quite a bit meeting with staffers and, you know, members of Congress and going to different, you know, agencies, whether it be EPA, DOI, different things like that, to advocate on clients' behalfs. And it's, you know, Zoom is good, but it's only good to a point. You can't, you know, creating that personal relationship in in a one-on-one in-person setting, there's no substitute for that. I agree. And I think we went through an interesting sort of transition of going from, you know, where working from home was kind of taboo, you know, pandemic hits, everyone adjusts, Everyone's like, oh, we could do this now forever. Like working from home is it. That's it. We're never going back to an office. All these office spaces are going to be, you know, empty. And what are we going to do with all this commercial space? Well, then now to where like people are itching, or at least a lot of people, and again, I'm speaking in generalities here, but you know, for the most part, people are like, man, we really like being back in front of people talking. And from like when in a corporate environment, it's impossible to build culture 
on Zoom, right? Like it's just, you can't, there's a bit of a, you kind of hit a limit on terms of the relationships and the dynamics that you can build. And so like you, I mean, I'm in the business where I'm in sales, business development, you know, and then the podcast, I'm a people's person and I much rather do these types of things in person. But fortunately, you know, we kind of get the best of both worlds. And as long as we can leverage technology, it has its benefits, right? I think productivity wise, it certainly has increased it on, on some levels. And so again, you know, we adapt or we die. And I think as at least in the here in the US, we've adapted quite well to the whole technology and virtual conference and meeting type environment. But anyway, so we're sitting here, it's almost Thanksgiving. I mean, are you guys sticking around Washington? What, what's that look like for you and the family? So my family and I, my wife, uh, I have two kids. I have a 13-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. And we are headed down to Fort Myers, Florida to visit my in-laws for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, I got to ask, what's the favorite dish on the menu for you? Well, my wife is of Hungarian descent. So Ooh, nice. my mother-in-law always makes me something kind of a different Hungarian dish. I never quite know what it is or what to expect, but it's always fantastic. So what's a typical Hungarian dish, if you could describe it? Very heavy. Uh, <laughs> okay. Lots, they eat well, huh? Yeah. Lots of bread, butter. Beautiful. Potatoes. It's just amazing. Okay. So... I was at the barbershop actually yesterday and we were talking about Thanksgiving because I'm from Canada. Half of my family's from Ukraine and the other half is from like France and Germany. And so he was asking, he was like, well, what's, you know, what's a typical Ukrainian dish? They have this, it's this bread. And so, you know, for the Eastern European folks, we eat pretty heavily as well. I can identify with a lot of the breads and the butters because that's what I grew up on. And it's probably why I'm a little leaner now than I was growing up because, you know, my wife doesn't quite cook like that. But the holidays are a great time. I mean, it's, you know, now that we've gone through elections, we kind of see, you know, where everything lies, lots to look forward to. But before we keep going on the conversation for the audience, I do want to remind everyone listening that I'm currently opening up sponsorship opportunities. So if any energy-focused companies are looking to increase brand marketing, visibility, and messaging, please reach out. I'd love to work with you, and we'll figure something out. So, Ryan, are you originally from Washington, D.C., or where are you from? No, born and raised in Ohio, Northwest Ohio, a small town called Defiance. Okay. Can I say go Buckeyes? Is that a thing? Yes. Go Buckeyes. Okay. Nice. Okay. That is a thing. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's, it's funny. It's if you're either have gone to Ohio State or you've grown up in Ohio and generally you, you root for the Buckeyes. I mean, some, there are some like in Northern Ohio where I'm from, you're close to the Michigan border. You can get people who root for that team up North who we won't mention. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's generally pretty Ohio State heavy. Nice. Okay, good. And so, I mean, what's it like growing up in Ohio? What's there to do around there? So growing up, my dad was a police officer in my hometown. He was and ultimately, you know, when I was in high school, he was chief of police. So I grew up in a bit of a fishbowl. But typically, I mean, it's agriculture, you know, based manufacturing based community. It's as flat as a tabletop with, you know, row crops as far as you can see. Industry, they GM has a huge foundry there. John's Manville, who makes fiberglass insulation, has a number of different factories there, but very, very manufacturing and agriculture heavy. Okay, cool. And so I got to ask, what's it like being a son to a chief of police? I mean, were you on your P's and Q's and are, were your friends like scared or either made strategic relationships with you to make sure they could maybe get a little help if something happened? Or I mean, what does that look like? Oh, it's funny you asked. I mean, a lot of my friends thought, oh, we have Ryan as a friend, so we get a, <laughs> get a, we get a get out of jail free card. 
Yeah, yeah of no, course, man. Absolutely not. No, it was, you get in trouble twice as much card if you, you know. <laughs> so I always knew if you get trouble somewhere else, you get in trouble twice as much at home. So, I bet, man. <laughs> no, I was good. My dad is now retired and he had a great career and, you know, still involved in the community. Great. No, nothing but the utmost respect for anyone involved with law enforcement. I couldn't imagine being in that type of environment day in and day out. So a big shout out to your dad there, Ryan. That's, you know, highly commendable. So kind of taking a step back, 30,000 foot view, looking at everything. I always like to ask a question to get to know someone just a little more. And you may have known this was coming, but what does an ideal Friday night look like for you? If you had all the money in the world, you could spend it with whoever you could teleport. If you could just paint a picture of what that would look like, what is the ideal Friday night for Ryan Walker? So it's interesting you ask. So I'm a lobbyist and, you know, people think, oh, you're very extroverted and, you know, you just want to be around people all the time. Well, not really. I tell people I'm a professional extrovert, you know, get paid to talk. And so on a Friday night, you know, my wife is quite the opposite. Like she's just extroverted, period, which I love. Yeah. But for me, it's being at home or being around a fire back in the backyard and I'm, I am I love wine. So good glass of wine. Interesting. Okay. So you're talking about fire. Are you roasting marshmallows, hot dogs, or just watching the fire? The kids are making s'mores. They'll make, they have this sandwich thing that they put bread in and put it over the fire and it cooks it. And so it's, yeah, we do it all. I love the outdoors. So anytime I can be outdoors, I fly fish. I like to hunt. So I tell people that golf is not my thing. I hunt and I fish and that's about it. Good for you. Where do you typically go hunting up there? So, I mean, there's, I've been deer hunting in Virginia and Oklahoma and Ohio, pheasant hunting in Virginia, pheasant hunting in Ohio. And I guess deer and pheasant are kind of the big things. Now, this is like, I will, I'm self-aware enough to know, like, these aren't wild pheasant. They're like, hey, we're going to go stick these birds in a field, you know, and then 30 minutes, we're going to, you know, send you out with a guide and a dog. Nice. Well, that's kind of how hunting is nowadays. I mean, I'm in, you know, upstream oil and gas industry and so, and in oil field services. So a lot of what we do is relationship management, which involves a lot of hunting, fishing, everything else in between. And so, yeah, it's funny because you go take customers to a deer lease or a ranch or something and it's all high fence. They put these animals in there and you go sit in the stand and within, you know, a couple hours, you're killing some exotic and you got this beautiful meat and the mount and it's kind of set up for success. Not too much hunting involved. I don't even like to call it hunting. I never, I've done it once and I actually, I've never was able to get anything, but I respect it. I think it's great. And especially if you can get your own meat to me, I mean, I'm a health and fitness buff. So anytime you can get some good quality meat in the freezer, I think that's a huge win. So absolutely. But that's really interesting. And don't worry, folks, we are going to talk about energy here in a minute, but (laughs) I don't know, Ryan, I'm trying to get to know him. It's just like everyone else's. So let's shift into energy mode here a little bit. Again, kind of a thoughtful question is, you know, what core belief around energy have you changed your mind on over the last few years? Does anything come to mind with the transition, politics? I mean, have you been able to kind of reframe anything and look at something through a different lens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I worked on Capitol Hill for 14 years as a senior staffer and then went to lobby in-house for an oil major. And so a lot of the talk has been about, you know, oil and gas, oil and gas production, refining capacity, you know, and then a lot of talk on the ether about climate change. You can have, this is one area where you, where I believe you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, you could have a robust oil and gas industry 
and you can deal effectively with climate change. There's nothing to say that those are mutually exclusive. And that's something that I've evolved on, so to speak, because I was very much in the, you know, we don't have to worry about climate change. We, you know, let's just produce oil and gas, oil and gas, you know, kind of the drill baby drill type ethos. But you can walk and chew gum at the same time in this area. And I think now we're seeing the necessity of doing that with everything going on in Ukraine, the price of oil, and just the kind of the energy sector globally. We have to do both and we have to do both well. Mm, no, that's great. And it's interesting, you know, that conversation I'm seeing and hearing a lot more. I mean, again, being here in Houston, we're heavily influenced by oil and gas, clearly, you know, a lot of different energy verticals as well, you know, but tech and climate tech is also something that is starting to emerge. And something else that I actually was listening to this morning, there's a great podcast, Dan Pickering and Josh Lowry from Upright Digital, they have a podcast and they were interviewing, oh, what is her name? She's from BP Ventures. I'm drawing a blank, but she originally from China, came over here, has worked for BP forever, and she's on the investment side. And she's really, you know, focused on, you know, the conversation was simply, yes, you know, as the oil and gas industry, we can also be part of the solution, contributing to effective climate change or, you know, effective climate sort of, you know, initiatives to help reduce the impact of oil and gas or, you know, just all the other sort of, you know, things that have contributed to a lot of the issues that we are experiencing with climate change. And she made a lot of just very interesting points from someone that's worked at BP for so long, who's now, you know, making a good push and transition, investing a lot back into the renewable space. And it's just really neat to see these conversations had. And it's unfortunate because a lot of times you get the extreme on both ends that are the loudest. But most people kind of are somewhere in the middle saying, hey, let's all kind of work together. Like you said, before we started recording, have all of the above sort of mentality, because when you look at just the fundamentals and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out is like the demand is there for oil and gas. Like We can't just flip a switch, right? Which I think that's been told a lot. Everyone understands. But I think to just continue having conversations, hopefully it reaches the further ends of the spectrum to where the extremes don't necessarily have as much of a voice. Cause I think that's where a lot of the divisiveness comes from. And I mean, most of the people that I speak with that are somewhat educated in the space are having very healthy, constructive conversations around this, but it's the ones who don't necessarily have the, I guess, you know, awareness or education around just even the basic fundamentals of energy are raising arms and splashing spaghetti on, you know, or what, you know what I mean? Like the whole yeah, anti-oil yeah. thing, and which I just is crazy. But anyway, like, the you know, again. Matter. Words matter. And look, I, yeah. you, you talk about the transition. I would say, look, you know, you talk about all of the above, right? All of the above, you know, when I was on the Hill, we talked about that in the early, well, mid 2000s, you know, 2010, things like that. And that's become very cliche with, you know, a, a certain political party, you know, the Republicans, right? They talk about all of the above quite a bit, which they should, and it's good, but words matter. And I think it's more of, you know, I would argue it's not a transition. Transition, you know, suggests that we're moving away from one thing and going to another. I would say I like the term energy expansion because we are, we're expanding the scope of what the global energy scene looks like, you know, whether it's, you know, moving away from coal to natural gas, you know, or, you know, utilizing natural gas and doing steam methane reforming and creating hydrogen and sequestering the carbon. You know, there's a lot there and we're expanding 
how we think about energy because we're never going to transition away from oil and gas because you know the clothes that you and I wear, you know the tires, everything is revolves around a petrochemical you know need in this society and the economy that we live in. So petrochemicals are always going to be there unless we're all going to go and wear burlap and walk everywhere. Right. Or unless, you know, unless we start moving backwards in the way we've evolved. Right. And the reality is, too, is, you know, there's a lot of non-OECD countries that only wish they could have access to the things we do. And so as, you know, emerging economies get from where they're at to very industrialized and start, you know, producing and manufacturing and increasing their GDP, well, then naturally energy demand is going to continue to go up and all these products and chemicals and everything else, the demand is going to be there. So yeah, so I would certainly agree with that. And I really, especially, you know, sitting on your side of the fence in, in, the, in the politics and sort of being on the front line of policy and legislation and stuff like that. It, it's awesome to hear that because I don't know, if, to be honest, if I've ever spoken to someone from that side of the country who represents that. And so it's, I love that your sort of thought behind it, because I'm sure you're shouting from the mountaintops to folks all throughout, you know, that part of the country as well. And so I'm curious, Ryan, is this something that you've always been interested in? I mean, looking at your background, you've got, you know, your journey started, you know, way back when, and you've worked for companies like BP, George Washington University, House of Representatives. So is this something as a child you were interested in or or talk a little (laughs) bit about how you got into all this? Because I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, no. Justin, I never thought I would be in politics. I never thought I would be where I am right now. I told you my, my dad was chief of police growing up. I had every intention of going into law enforcement. I never wanted to do kind of the local or state law enforcement. I always wanted to go federal. And when I came out of college, I applied to kind of the alphabet soup of federal agencies, right? And But I really wanted to be a DEA special agent. I wanted to kick indoors and take bad guys and drugs off the street. And yeah. I got... A conditional offer of employment from the DEA, pending you know background checks and all that kind of stuff, and then DEA ended up going on a hiring freeze, and that evaporated. That opportunity evaporated, and all the other kind of cornucopia of federal agencies said, "Well, thanks, but you know, you either don't have any experience or you don't have a master's degree." And I was like, "Well, all right, I think I need to go get a master's degree." So I came out and went to George Washington University for my graduate work and started working then for my now late Congressman Paul Gilmore, who was my hometown congressman. And, you know, through the three years, I thought I was going to graduate grad school, go back to Ohio and become a, you know, federal law enforcement officer. But I started to kind of rise through the ranks, you know, pretty quickly in the office. And and I was like, wow, this is the path. And it's funny. It's like, you know, they always say, you know, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plan. And <laughs> right, yeah, he certainly had a different path for me. Wow, no, that's fascinating. Because I mean, again, the guy's grown up from Ohio, and he said in your environment, you weren't really exposed to energy like someone say from you know, like Houston, Dallas, or yeah, you know, or some of these places. Or and a lot of times, you know, if parents are involved in energy, then naturally through osmosis, you kind of get a little taste, and you, whether either you run away from it or you gravitate towards it. But no, I think that that's really fascinating. So again, in the chair that you sit in on that side of energy, what do you suspect is the biggest challenge that you feel exists within the energy landscape that may inhibit you know, our progress towards a lot of the goals and stuff that we've set in place? Let's just call it domestically here. Permitting, permitting reform. That is a huge topic now on Capitol Hill and kind of the policy realms. You had the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which passed 
earlier this year. And then more recently, you had the Inflation Reduction Act, which all kind of included, you know, a lot of energy components in them. But then you can have all that and that's well and good. But if you don't have permitting reform, you're never going to get these things built for seven to 10 years or maybe more. You know, you have a lot of these regulatory hurdles that create process slowdowns, you know, and process hurdles and generate litigation. And it's just, it's out of control. We need to, and I think that there are smart people on both sides of the aisle, you know, Captain McMorris Rogers from the state of Washington, who's likely to chair the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And you have, you know, Senator Joe Manchin in the Senate that are looking at this and see the need for it. Because if we're going to progress with the energy expansion, if we're going to progress with making sure that we're producing enough for the demand out there, I mean, we have to have process reform, permitting reform. We haven't had a refinery built in this country since 1977. And gasoline demand isn't going down. Right. So kind of to add to the question, it's you know, sometimes I feel like I'm in a bit of a, in a bubble, right? I'm here in Houston in the echo chamber of like what we really need and like how are these policies making any sense and this and that. But so the question, I say that to say, what kind of exposure or like, let's just, for instance, and this is an educating piece for me as well, but like, so President Joe Biden or any president for that matter, how much educating on like energy, like the true fundamentals of energy and economics do they get sort of exposed to to make certain decisions? Can you kind of explain like the workflow on how that works? Because like a lot of times when, again, on either side of whether it's red, blue, regardless, but let's just say whoever Mr. or Mrs. President is like, are they getting properly educated in this space? Or if not, like why not? Or are they influenced based on whatever, like the next vote or something. Like, again, I'm coming from Canada, so I don't have like a deep understanding a lot of times of like why we're doing things. So again, I don't know if that makes sense, my question, but sometimes things get said to the country and I scratch my head. I'm like, how is someone in your position, does that make any sense? Like, aren't people educated telling you that that doesn't make sense? (laughs) Yeah. So look, I always kind of see the institutions and the levers of our government kind of, maybe I have too much of an altruistic view on it in the sense that I believe people are doing the right things for the right reason. But yeah, I mean, sometimes there are information gaps. There really are. And there are education gaps. And that's why I think it's important. And representation matters. I think we talked about this before we started recording. And, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. I always like to tell people, and it's kind of a cynical viewpoint, but it's true. I mean, if you're, you know, you need to educate people. You need to, you know, these companies and these industries need to educate people. They need to advocate because there are so many different things going on in this world. And there's only, you know, 435 members of the House and 100 senators and one president. And there's only so much and only 24 hours in a day. So there's so much going on. You're competing for attention. You're competing for time. You're trying to rise above the noise. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. Sometimes it's difficult to break through. And I think that's why being engaged in the process is important. Now, it's a great answer. And again, like, you know, you'll have to excuse the ignorance and some of the questions I have. But these, you know, again, I feel like I'm somewhat educated. And But the reality is, is the general population takes a bunch of headlines, draws conclusions, listens to what's on 
you know, two or three different news channels, and then ultimately votes based off of that, which then leads our country into whatever direction. And so, yeah, so I was curious, it's like, how does that all work? And, and again, great answer. And, and appreciate you adding some color to that. Let's talk a little bit more about Shoemaker and what you do there. How would you describe what it is you guys offer and ultimately how that affects whether it's policy or legislation and all the rest of it? Yeah. So Shoemaker Advisors, it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Shoemaker, Loop and Kendrick, which is a top 200 law firm headquartered in Toledo, Ohio. The firm itself, we have offices in Toledo, Columbus, Ohio, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, and then Tallahassee, Tampa, and Sarasota in Florida. So a lot of key states that we're in, but Shoemaker Advisors, you know, we have state level advocacy in Columbus and Tallahassee, and they brought me on to stand up their full-time physical presence in Washington. So, you know, we're here to help our clients, like I said, rise above the noise, break through, to have a voice and a seat at the table. Because if your you know, policy is never made in a vacuum, so your voice, whoever that voice is, you know, needs to have a strong voice and a consistent voice. So we're helping clients in Washington, D.C., you know, educate about their businesses. We're helping them have a voice in the process so that policy is not made in that vacuum without their voice so that they're not so that they don't have unnecessary hurdles that are added to their process or their businesses rather that cost them more time, cost them more money, cost them more headaches, frankly. And, you know, all of these companies and, you know, in the, in the energy sector, they're doing their jobs by running their business. They don't always have the time to be engaged in the policy and the political process. That's the value that we add. And we come in and we're not just consultants or lobbyists. We want to be part of the client's team. We want to wear their jersey. You know, we're there to be heavily integrated in their process. Interesting. So what type of companies are your clients? Are they just like anybody, anyone or? Yeah, we're a multi-client firm. So my personal kind of specialty areas are in the energy area and tech and telecommunications policy. So we, you know, oil field services, oil and gas producers, you know, we also have clients in the healthcare space, you know, clients in the transportation space as well. So kind of all over, you know. While I've done a lot of work in the energy and the tech and telecom space, I can say I'm a, rather than an inch deep in a mile wide, I'm more like a foot deep in a mile wide. <laughs> I hear you. No, that's fascinating. It's good to have companies like yourselves, like you say, giving people a voice and allowing them hopefully to have a seat at the table you know, through what you guys offer. So Ryan, a while back, you sent me some information on the House GOP and the 2023 energy bill which is a legislative push to try and push production for fossil fuels, low carbon sources like renewables, small nuclear reactors, hydrogen, if they win control of the house in the midterms. Well, they did it, right? And so I'm curious, how do you see this playing out and what can you know folks expect as this continues to evolve? Yeah, Justin, I think this is a real exciting time. You know, you have a lot of media out there that are saying, oh, Congress and this nation is so you know, divided. There's such partisan acrimony. I think, look, I, maybe this is a bit of a, of a naive or altruistic view, but I believe in the institutions of the Republic. And, you know, 
I think that you know, you look at there was a Pew Research Center analysis done oh um, spanned thirty years, right? From nineteen eighty nine to nineteen twenty. And four of the five most productive sessions of Congress, you know, took place while there was divided government. And those policies are more durable. You know, you think of the 1981, the 1986 Reagan tax cuts, welfare reform under President Clinton. Both of the, all those were done under divided government. So I think that there's great hope coming into this. Now, I'm not going to be so naive to say, look, you know, we're going into a presidential year. Neither party really wants to give the other, you know, too much success. But neither party can also risk going into a presidential election cycle without something to talk about, something to say, look, this is what we've done. And I think this energy bill that could materialize in the next maybe three to six months will be very important. You know, and I think permitting reform will be a huge portion of that. Senator Manchin already had a bill, tried to get in this year. There's still talk about maybe doing something in the lame duck session of Congress. I don't know how realistic that really is. I think more will be focused on the, you know, come January when the new Congress comes in. But with the Republicans taking control of the House, you know, there's kind of really four buckets, you know, from what I can ascertain where they want to focus. And it's, you know, economic growth, oversight, energy and security. And in those buckets, you know, economic growth, you're looking at reducing government spending, supply chain resiliency, reshoring manufacturing, you know, oversight. There's obviously we talked about before about the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, two huge bills to conduct oversight over how that money is being spent, you know, to make sure taxpayers' money is being spent wisely. Energy, you know, we talked about production, increasing production, permitting, and also renewables too are a portion of that. You know, it's in how do we, how do we expand hydrogen? You know, how do we expand the, you know, the electrification of different industries or the transportation sector, you know, and then security. I think that you're going to, right out of the gate, you're going to see a House Republican majority deal with security at the southern border, IP security, or we're dealing with China. And then obviously crime in our country right now is under an, uh, has an, a fentanyl epidemic, yeah. you know, which is frightening. A lot to handle, but Look, I'm an optimistic and a hopeful person, and I think that we're going to see a lot of good things come. Nice. Do you think oftentimes the government just in general gets in its own way to slow down progress instead of just kind of having faith in the private sector? Or or do you think this will kind of help accelerate it and get us where we need to be? I think COVID and you know other geopolitical factors, the government and the private sector are going to have to work together. And because one doing, you know, if one hand is doing something and the other doesn't know about it, the whole system is going to, it's going to overcorrect one way or the other. So there has to be this working together, which, you know, generally you see that they work pretty well together. But again, that's why representation matters. Right, right. And I'm curious on your thoughts. You know, recently there's been discussion, and I don't think it's going to pass about windfall taxes for oil and gas companies. Again, sitting on my side of the fence, to me, it, it only hurts the situation. But perhaps can you explain more on like a, a sort of an overview as to like what the intent and why that would be implemented and where sort of the, I guess, like why government thinks that's a good idea? Do you have any thoughts around that? So windfall, t- I, look, I could tell you now with the Republican House being a backstop for a lot of, you know, what the Biden administration is trying to do. 
windfall tax is not going to happen. And I think that they, you know, look, I don't know if anyone, frankly, thinks that windfall taxes are a good thing. That makes for good political theater. And that's about it. Yeah, like that's, again, I don't, and I respect your answer on that. You know, clearly it can be a sensitive subject, depending on what side of the fence you sit on. But I guess it's just, it's challenging for me, someone in oil and gas who sees the hard work and what we're able to do and, and the efforts that we make to produce, you know, clean barrels or the cleanest barrels we can. And then, you know, us as an industry, we have our president up there saying, hey, congrats, we're going to help increase production. But you can't make money because you have to make sure all that money that you're making gets put into lowering gas prices at the pump. And then, oh, we're going to heavily tax you. And so it's like I scratch my head and it's sometimes hard for me to understand. Like I always try to have enough empathy to at least consider the other side's sort of Mm -hmm. intent whether that's politics or not, my wife, my buddies, like, you know what I mean? I always try to say, okay, if I put myself in your shoes, like, what's the reason here? And that one, I still have a hard time understanding. And and again, I'm not expecting you to fully explain it or whatever, but it's just, these are things that just kind of make me scratch my head. And it's frustrating, right? Because like, I would love to be able to sit down and be like, can you please explain why this is going to help in the long run? Like, where is this coming? You know? And so again, that's just me thinking out loud, but hopefully for folks out there, like, and, you know, I've had, especially with, since coming out of COVID, we've had an economic roller coaster. Like, I feel bad for people coming out of, you know, graduating high school or college throughout COVID and now having to face this types of environments, like to get their career started around this time is, I mean, maybe it's opportunity, but again, it's just like, I've done a lot of, you know, educating, you know, people, cause I have a large social circle that has nothing to do with oil and gas. And mm-hmm. well, when gasoline prices were skyrocketing and it's like, man, what, how come you're, all these companies are making all this expensive gasoline it's like ah okay let's get back to the basics here everybody like supply and demand and refining capacity and all this but even for someone like myself that's in the space even i have to kind of like really check my information to make sure i'm not spewing something that is inaccurate so for the general population who doesn't care about energy and the only thing they care about is their electricity bill and gas prices yeah they're gonna take what they see over the news and apply that complex topic which not very many people truly understand how gasoline prices are actually set to where then, yeah, you you just, you know, you kind of get people sort of kind of, it's like the blind leading the blind sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's look, the oil and gas companies, they're producing a product, right? They're investing capital, producing a product and they, you know, just like any company, they should see a profit from it. And, you know, it just happens now that, you know, given a lot of other inputs, you know, the price per barrel has been relatively high compared to, you know, the, previous, I don't know, five to seven years. And the energy industry is, I love it. Look there, when I went to work for BP, the last interview I had was with our then US CEO. And, you know, he basically came in and said to me, look, what we do here is we light heat and move the world by providing reliable, affordable and abundant energy. And that was a mission I got behind. I love Hell it. Yeah. And I still believe in that. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, right? It's like, I think the yeah. North Star needs to be, how can we get every single individual on this planet out of energy poverty? And, exactly. You know, and I'm saying like, come hell or high water, we'll do it by any means necessary. But like, the reality is like, if you look at say the US, like our CO2, like our emissions with here in the US have slowly gone down, but yet we've produced more energy. And so like, clearly we're doing something right here through technology and innovation. And just efforts, you know, you look at Canada, 
they've been up against some headwinds politically, you know, on the oil and gas side. But arguably, even, you know, the dirty oil sands, they actually produce a fairly clean barrel of oil relative to the rest of the world. And so there's a lot of good debate there. And so it's like, again, or sorry, if you're going to say something. No, no. So where are you from in Canada? Calgary, Alberta. Okay. So during the pandemic, there was this was great because as everyone was shut in, there was this app called Clubhouse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I joined Clubhouse for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, It was great. I was you know, I met all these people from all over the world, frankly. Yeah. And one of the guys that I ended up connecting with was a member of parliament from Canada. His name was Matt Jeanneru. I think I'm pronouncing it's from Edmonton. And just a really, really great guy is, you know, kind of a pro oil and gas guy. And just so I, I ended up starting this oil and gas club with a couple other folks from around the country on Clubhouse, and we'd have guests on. We had a few members of Congress on and different things like that. But he came on to give a kind of a Canadian perspective, and it was fantastic. He's just a really good guy. Cool. No, that's I'll have to check him out. Maybe he's on LinkedIn or something and, and yeah. connect. That would be really cool. Yeah, Edmonton's Calgary to Edmonton is like what Houston is to Dallas. Okay. Calgary is about three hours south of Edmonton, similar to Houston, Dallas type of thing. And and Edmonton's very heavy, you know, industrialized type of city. A lot of the oil field companies are based out of Edmonton. And then corporate a lot of times is based out of Calgary. So but anyway, no, that's really neat. And yeah, Clubhouse was fun. We started a few little, I guess, sessions you know, around energy and just kind of some buddies and stuff. And then all of a sudden Twitter comes along and rips and releases Twitter spaces. So then Clubhouse was like, wah, wah. But I, I, don't know if Club, <laughs> I don't know if Clubhouse is still a thing, but, you know, talking about the Canadian energy sector there, there's a gentleman, Arjun Murti, who's on the board of directors for Conoco, who's got a long track record on a board of advisors for several different companies. But I actually had him on the podcast and now he has a blog called Oh, I'm going to, again, memory's not serving me correct today. But uh, anyway, it's a great blog where he talks about energy economics and real, some, you know, science and factual based information. And he's very, very pro Canadian oil and gas, Canadian energy, and thinks that that's going to help, you know, the US and a lot of parts of the world if, you know, given the opportunity. So again, I say that to say this. And again, this is definitely a podcast like, oh, oil and gas is the end all be all. It's again, I think it's going to take my stance is it takes everybody, it takes everything, it takes all sorts of forms of technology from yeah. all walks of the energy industry. But the reality is we've built a society on the backbone of fossil fuels. Let's, if we're going to continue to evolve, we'll probably need it and let's make it cleaner and let's adopt the rest of the technologies and come together and get energy poverty, you know, or get everyone out of energy poverty. And that to me is the North Star, but I agree with you. (laughs) And you're you're exactly right. I mean, and it's, I think that in, you know, in the world that I'm in, I think that you're going to see a lot of that start to be talked about. My former boss, Congressman Bob Latta from Ohio, he serves on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And he is, there's, when it comes to legislating energy policy, there's probably nobody better. And he's very in tune with kind of the energy industry. And I think he's going to, he'll play a big role in kind of helping, you know, this conversation as it unfolds. Awesome. No, I, I love how more and more people are having good, constructive, non sort of divisive type conversations. And so it's coming up close to the hour here. And I certainly want to respect your time, Ryan. But if you had a, I'm going to take, this is from Tim Ferriss. If anyone listens to Tim Ferriss, you'll know I stole this question. But if you had a billboard or a blimp or something that 
you know, everyone's, whether it be in Washington, D.C., down here in Houston, in the U.S., if there was a message that you could put on a board that everyone could see it almost every day, what would that message be? Well, my message for the specifically for the energy sector is representation matters. And I keep saying that, I keep harping on it because you have a lot of the big players, the people who you expect to have a voice in the process, you know, the oil majors and folks like that. But the real oil and gas industry is the smaller companies, the people who are out in Midland and Odessa and out in the Permian drilling wells, single wells, small, you know, operations, smaller operations. That's the real oil and gas industry. That's whose voice you know, needs to be in this as we continue to talk about this, you know, not just the producers, but the oil field services as well. And kind of the other industries that feed into that. It's a whole ecosystem and everyone's voice matters. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great way to close out on the business front. On the personal side, one last question I always like to ask is, you know, would you have any daily habits or routines? You know, you're clearly, I'm sure politics is, you know, 24-7, 365, you're dealing with the kiddos, everything else, but do you have any sort of daily habits or routines that keep you grounded and charged up to tackle, you know, Capitol Hill? Yeah, I read the Bible every day. My faith, I'm a person of faith and I wouldn't be where I am without Jesus. Wow. I love it, man. That's great. And a big shout out to you and and your commitment to that. And again, for everyone out there, thank you so much for joining us today. Ryan, if people are interested in hearing more about whether it's Shoemaker or just some of the stuff that we talked about today, do you have any good resources? What I'll do, I'll put the link in the show notes for your LinkedIn, for Shoemaker, but any other good resources that if people are interested in learning more about what we talked about today? Yeah. I mean, you can visit our website, shoemakeradvisors.com, I believe is it. And then if people just want to get in touch with me, you know, happy to connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message on LinkedIn, or people can just shoot me an email at rwalker at shoemakeradvisors.com. Awesome. No, that's perfect. I encourage everyone to connect with Ryan over LinkedIn and you do a good job of of posting stuff on LinkedIn and some content. And again, follow along and, and see all the cool things that Ryan and the rest of his team are doing at Shoemaker. For the listeners, thanks. And always a reminder, please reach out to me if you'd like to sponsor the show. Until next time, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.